0: We are starting the show today, though, talking more about short-term rentals. And certainly, there has been a lot of talk lately about the number of Airbnb listings, about people who are making up put numbers for their accounts, and perhaps renting out properties that don't really fall within the rules. So how do you deal with that? My first guest is joining us to talk about that. Michael Vogel is the CEO and founder of Encore Ventures, and he joins us on the line. Michael, thank you so much for being with us
1: my pleasure till how are you
0: I'm very well how about you
1: good good thank you
0: uh, you are uh, the CEO and founder of encore ventures but you are also somebody who operates legal Airbnbs in some communities can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah that's right yeah I um I got interested in the Airbnb a number of years ago um I think like other hosts you, you visit some place that you find interesting maybe on holiday and you dream of uh, of having a vacation home there one day and Airbnb has uh, allowed people um, in the position to, uh, to, to do that, to rent out a home when they're, when they're not there and uh, maybe have a, a retirement home for the future.
0: And when you talk about then being a host, having uh, legal Airbnbs, what do you have to do to make sure that it does fall within the rules that it is legal?
1: Yeah, so every community has the the right to decide what what housing um and and hotels and vacation rentals look like. And so um every municipality can can vote on what they require. So um some municipalities I'll give a local example. So uh, Whistler for example is a reno- uh, resort municipality in in British Columbia and uh, they require certain certain uh, zones. So uh there's are certain areas that are zoned for Airbnb, certain zones that are that are not. So it uh, doesn't matter how much you like a certain area. If you want to do Airbnb there, you, you just can't. And that's been decided on by the community, and, and that, that's how it goes.
0: And when we talk about, say, so that would be the rule in Whistler, uh, in Vancouver as well, which we have been talking a lot about because of the number of short-term rental listings, it, it has to be your principal residence, doesn't it? And that it's not it's not... It would be against the rules, say if it was a basement suite in in your house, or if it was a laneway house, something like that.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and and it's been probably about five years, but since since uh, that's been the case, where uh, there are some exceptions where where you can uh, do Airbnb at, at home, but but for the most part, yes, if it's your principal residence, then then uh, yeah, then you can't do Airbnb at home.
0: Uh, we know that there are listings, though, that don't fall within those rules that that go against what the rules are specifically in the city of Vancouver. Uh, you've talked a bit about how how it would be easy enough or ways that perhaps if the city did want to crack down on this, they could. Uh, what do you think the city could do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, when, when we look online, there's obviously a lot of fury around it, especially, you know, anything to do with, with housing is, is a hot-button issue. Um I think the natural instinct is, Hey, we need more enforcement. We need people to come out and, and inspect places and find owners. And, and yes, that's fine. But I think if the goal is to, uh, is to prevent this activity from happening, I think a, a very natural solution would be to, um, uh, basically have to digitally scan Airbnb through a, through a simple computer program and find listings that have a, a, a legal permit number from the city and the ones that don't just flag them and, and notify Airbnb, uh, my experience with Airbnb is they tend to have a fairly low tolerance for, for um, illegal activity on their platform, you know, whether it's noise complaints or, or you know, various issues that, that um, can lead to someone being a bad host. They, they don't hesitate to remove from the platform. So I think if the city were to notify them in a, in a, in a practical manner, uh, I don't see any reason why they, they would be removed. And if they're removed, you know, 80% of, of travel activity is happening through Airbnb. There are other apps, but um, if you start for, from there, I think, you know, I think uh, uh, citizens would be would be pretty happy.
0: Uh, interesting when you, when you talk about that too, uh, because uh, I was curious about the response or what they can expect as far as cooperation from Airbnb, because like you said, it would be one thing if we're talking about renters who cause issues or if there's noise violations that could potentially uh, have an impact or, or, or look poorly on Airbnb, uh, but is Airbnb then expected to know what each different municipality or each different city has as rules for short term rentals?
1: Yeah, they, they tend to be very proactive on it. Um, I know when when you're setting a listing in a, in a new city, they'll often have information related to the taxes. And um, if you if you do have to input a, a license number, they do have a, a portal where you have to do that in order for the listing to go live. I think what's been happening in Vancouver is there have been expired listings um, or expired license numbers floating around, and uh, they're able to bypass that. Or maybe they apply saying, hey, I'm going to be renting out a room in my home, which is allowed. You can rent out a second bedroom, for example, as long as you're still living there. That's fine. And they'll get a permit number from that from the city, but then um, decide to skirt the rules and decide to rent out the whole place. So uh, they're sort of skirting around the the rules to, to get through.
0: Right. And do you think something like you mentioned, software that kind of scans or goes through the site, if it was someone doing that, would it pick something like that up?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you, you know, there's there's all kinds of uh, metrics that we can see on Airbnb. Um, there's a website uh, called AirDNA, uh, airdna.co that uh, monitors Airbnb statistics. So it's very easy to see on a particular listing how many days of the month or the year uh, a place is rented and whether it's the, the whole home or, or not. Um, yeah, I, I think it would be a fairly straightforward solution. I mean, we're, we're, In the 21st century now where AI can write poetry, I'm sure it can crack down on illegal listings.
0: Um, Interesting when you when you put it that way. Also, I I do question if there is, I know that the current council in Vancouver is now looking at this and this is being brought to their attention more. But I would think too, because the city still makes money from Airbnb when we're talking about taxes on this. So even if they're illegal or legal, there is still money flowing into the city from all of these listings.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, we talk about the cost of housing, but um, you know the, the cost of a holiday is something that that uh, people notice as well. Um, and, and within BC, actually, um, taxes on on hotel rooms and Airbnb's are actually quite quite high. I think the total would be around sixteen percent when you when you um, add in PST, which is actually eight percent, not seven percent, on an Airbnb. Um, so there's an MRDT tax, which is another three percent, so and GST, serves at least sixteen percent, um, and then. Other cities can add in other fees. But, uh, yeah, a $1,000 listing, um, you know, that's uh, $160 that goes to various levels of government.
0: Right. Uh, And as somebody, too, so as somebody that that you uh, said that you do operate, again, legal Airbnbs, this is a topic that comes up or a question that often comes up as well is we know there's a lack of housing and there's a shortage of housing. But... Should people who have basement suites or laneway homes or or rooms to rent out, if they're not comfortable with long-term rentals or for whatever reason they don't want long-term rentals, maybe they have kids that come home from university for three or four months or they use it for in-laws, they use it in other ways, that they're being forced to kind of not make money from short-term rentals. They're being forced to put their rental stock into the long-term housing pool due to the fact that there is this housing shortage. Shortage that isn't their fault
1: yeah absolutely and, and, and I agree with you hundred um, percent I think you know it yes Airbnbs are, are presently legal uh, illegal but um, that doesn't mean that it's it's the, the correct and final solution right so um, yeah we can we can address you know, legal listings. but you know just like you said um, people you know have homes and basement suites where it doesn't make maybe make sense to have a full-time tenant all year because yeah in the summer, Kids come home, family comes from out of town, uh, and it, you know, and it would be convenient to, to um, be able to open up their, their basement suite for, for Airbnb part time. Um, I know one solution that has, that makes a lot of sense, um, in a, in a popular vacation market of Palm Springs, what they did is they actually, um, uh, stipulated that you can't host more than 32, uh, guests, uh, 32 individual stays per year. So, uh, that basically prevents you from having a full time Airbnb, but it does allow you to have a part time one. Right. So uh, that would solve that solution in Vancouver, which, which I think makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, I, I certainly don't agree with the, the notion of you know, forcing people to rent out their basement suite. If it, if it doesn't make sense, you know, people have the right to, to use their own home. And, um, and, it, and and it's not like it would be taken away from a long-term rental unit uh, in any case.
0: Right. And, and you kind of touched on this, but when you talk as well about the regulations in Whistler, where it's not right across the, the entire place, it's it's different sections of the city, different different parts of the resort area, that, that maybe something like that could be adopted in Vancouver as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think ultimately that makes sense. And, and I think people think critically about it. You know, we're, we're in beautiful British Columbia. Uh, tourism is a very big part of our, um, our economy. It, it, it employs a lot of people, both directly and, and indirectly. And um, I think there was a, a survey from uh, Destination Vancouver that, that said by 2026... Uh, Vancouver will be sold out of, of hotel rooms. There just won't be enough capacity, especially in the summer. So um, there is a shortage in housing. There's also a shortage in, in, in you know, hotel rooms and, 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 uh, and short-term rentals. And so I think Vancouver sense, if they took a Whistler approach, I think maybe um, allowing Airbnb in certain zones on the downtown peninsula makes sense. Um, and, then, and then allowing that to be up to strata approval. You know, individual buildings can choose their own fate whether they want it or not but i think that's kind of a logical solution and um, it allows people to to decide hey do i want this in in my suburban neighborhood or just downtown or you know what what combination of of, of that do they want but um yeah make it up to each uh, each city to decide
0: michael thanks so much for joining us today and talking more about this we'll leave it there but appreciate your time
1: oh my, my pleasure thank you
0: Well, do you remember when the Concorde was flying? It was a long time ago. I had to double check the date and the Concorde stopped its service, the fastest ever transatlantic crossing with a passenger aircraft. It stopped that service in 2003 and it has been spending some time at the New York Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum. But Within the uh, past few hours, anybody in that area, that part of New York, got a bit of a rare view. And this was the Concorde being uh, taken by boat to the Brooklyn Navy Yard. So here to talk with us more about this is Brett Bala, who is a global news producer, but also uh, a uh, kind of an expert on all things aviation. Brett, thank you so much for being with us. A pleasure, Joe. Uh, I just find this story fascinating. Going back to when the Concorde was flying and the excitement around that, and just how far uh, things have gone, and not in a great way for that aircraft.
2: Yeah, it's a hundred percent right. I mean, just think—I remember being in London in uh, 2000 or so, and I was at the—I uh, was at the Tower Bridge, which is an amazing structure, but. I looked up and I happened to see the Concorde and that stopped all my activity for basically the rest of the afternoon because that was the kind of attention that that plane could hold. Um, And as you said, this this particular uh, one was retired in 2003. We haven't seen a supersonic plane since then. Um, And this one in particular is on display in New York, um, where unfortunately time has not been very kind to it. Uh, The weather taking its toll, uh, salt water taking its toll, and so the plane needs to basically need some maintenance.
0: Yes, need, needs a little maintenance, maybe a new coat of paint, a little, a little bit of help getting back to a, a state exactly. that, it can, that it can be Cover on. Cover up the rust. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you go back to that moment, when you saw the Concorde, you were standing there, and I can, even, I can only imagine what that must have felt like. It, it must have been just strange seeing this supersonic jet in the air above you.
2: Oh yeah, I mean, I I grew up in Edmonton, I lived out here. I I never saw a Concorde in the air, it just didn't happen out this way. Um, And I think I actually shouted, look, Concorde, Uh, when I happened to see it and I I couldn't help myself. That is the kind of mystical hold this aircraft had on me and on so many others uh, who, because it represented a level of luxury that didn't exist uh, in aviation otherwise. And a level of speed that passengers could only hope for. Um, military pilots can routinely reach speeds faster than the speed of sound. But for passengers, it just wasn't a thing uh, except on the Concorde. And, and it hasn't been since the Concorde uh, was retired, basically.
0: And I had to go and look it up as well because I had forgotten the time it took to, to do the crossing. So the Cro- the Concorde could, and it still, I believe, holds the record for the fastest transatlantic crossing by passenger aircraft. So two hours, 52 minutes and 59 seconds, that was the flight from Heathrow to JFK. And, and yep. like you said, it was this bit of luxury that we'd not seen before. Uh, what happened though? Because it, it was brought out with such, fanfare and and like you said people who were lucky enough to see it from the ground were mesmerized by this plane what happened and what led to its demise
2: Uh, it was a few things Uh, you'll remember at the in paris there was a crash of a Concorde um that ran over a bit of uh, some metal left on the runway by a previous flight uh which punctured the uh which punctured the fuel tank and led to ignition and that plane crashed uh on takeoff from paris and that really was kind of the Beginning of the end for 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 the Concord. Um, it they had to go through some major modifications to secure the fuel tanks um, to prevent similar actions uh, or accidents like that in the future. And realistically, it, that made it more expensive to fly. It was already it was always a gas guzzler, um, and it could only carry a hundred passengers. So you had to have a hundred people who were willing to pay the premium premium fares to get across the country. Uh, or sorry, to get across the Atlantic. And so essentially what happened was time started catching up to the Concorde as futuristic as it was. it, could not sustain with the amount of fuel that it burned, the environmental concerns, and then also the perception of luxury travel, which started to really, people started to sour on it a little bit in, uh, in the early 2000s. And that really, unfortunately, caused uh, British Airways and Air France, the two Concorde operators to say, okay, we, we just can't afford to keep this in the, in the air anymore.
0: Hmm. And uh, I, I, this might be going far much uh, far too far into the technical side of it, but I, but I was curious as well. Um, and if you don't know this, that's fine. But people will remember the Concorde and the look of it and that drooping nose at the the front of the mm-hmm. Concorde. And you kind of went into some of the other things that that were on it that made it this fast, super fast airplane. What role did that play,
2: though, or why did it have that unique look? It was really iconic, wasn't it? Uh, it? It had that unique look because to to be able to go Mach two, you have to really streamline your aircraft. So aircraft now they kind of have that bulbous nose, and it's because they're going. Uh, I'll say slow enough to be able to handle it, but once you get up into supersonic speeds, the you you need almost like a bullet to 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 get through the air efficiently. So that made it a very uh, pointy nose on the Concorde, but the problem was pilots couldn't see to land. So the reason that the nose would it would essentially bow out of the way, um, as pilots were uh, taking off and landing. And that was just so that they could see out the front um, and see the ground in front of them uh, as they were landing and also see the runway as they're taking off. Uh, So it was a visibility question really. Uh, And then it would go up once they were approaching, uh, approaching Mach approaching the speed of sound, and that would turn it into a bullet into a really fast aircraft.
0: And uh, again, we mentioned the last Concorde flight was in 2003 and uh, kind of came to an end because of those reasons that you mentioned. And it just didn't, it just couldn't maintain that level and and passengers and carry on. Is it strange, do you think, that we've not seen something like that trying to be revived? Or is there just not, there there is no room for a Concorde or a Concorde like plane today in commercial aviation?
2: Oh, that is such a great question. I was I was thinking about that a lot as I was preparing to talk to you, um, and I don't have a good answer for you. Um, it, there are still companies working on supersonic flight, but realistically, they're not working on anything the scale of the Concorde. So they're working on uh, the largest uh, proposal out there right now is for a plane with seventy-five seats, and and it's not even close to flying. Um, so it's it's it tells you how hard it is to make the economics work the environmental concerns and also uh, let's not forget you also have a huge technical um a huge technical challenge in dealing with sonic booms the Concorde was banned over land and that's because going above the speed of sound it would leave it would trail behind it all the way to the ground these booms that you could hear that would rattle windows um and that's why the Concorde was banned over land And we still haven't really fixed that problem yet. There's been a lot of work on it, don't get me wrong, but we're not at the point of saying, hey, we've solved this, so therefore let's go ahead. Uh, So it tells you how much of a challenge it is, even though the Concorde flew in in 1969 in the first place. It, It had old technology. We have much more advanced technology since then, but the problems still remain. So it's a real challenge.
0: Yeah and, and it was interesting too even looking back at this when when you mentioned when it started flying I had forgotten as well that it flew for that long it wasn't like it was just a blip it only flew for yeah. a couple of years it was up there for a while
2: yeah, it really was. It really was, and and it's funny, you know. You you go down to, I mean, I never had the chance to fly in it. I, I'm 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 not in the ultra wealthy group, um, but when you go down to the Museum of Flight down in Seattle, there's a Concorde there uh, under a tent, uh, which is a good thing and under structure that is. Um, but when you go into it, you you realize just how small this aircraft is, um, and that was a a question of speed and keeping it small to, uh, to to go as fast as it possibly could, um, and most of our Most of our travel nowadays has moved away from that small luxury in favor of uh, larger planes with more economy seats, so people willing to pay less uh, for their travel. So unfortunately, economics are, are a bit of a challenge for a Concorde type plane as well now, still today.
0: Hmm. So do you think it's a good thing that at least that it took, I think it was about a two-hour trip today, depending on the tides <laughs> on that barge, to get that facelift and to stay in the museums, to, to stay there as a reminder and to, to let people know
2: what the Concorde was all about? I think every penny we can invest in these beauties is worth it. Anything that keeps them alive is just absolutely worth it, in my opinion.
0: All right, Brett, thank you so much for doing this for joining us to talk more about the history of the Concord and where it is today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, people are being advised if you want to see a pretty cool meteor shower over the coming days and more specifically the coming nights, you might want to look to the sky because the Perseids are taking place. And joining us to talk more about what is going to be happening is Andrew Ferreira, Speaker's Chair with the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada at Vancouver Centre. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Hey, thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Well, I know you have a, an event that you want to talk about and we will get to that, but before we do, what can we expect as far as these perseids?
3: So, the perseids are usually seen as the marquee, uh, the big old uh, meteor shower for the year. Uh, and so, if you're in a dark enough area and you've, you know, you're lucky with the weather, that's always the trump card here, um, you could expect, you know, up to about 100 meteors per hour, which is on the high end. Uh, but anywhere between sixty to hundred, if you're in the right spot with the right conditions.
0: Hmm. And uh, so you said the dark and the right weather. So I'm guessing you you want to have the clear skies.
3: Yeah. So you always, you know, Mother Nature is the boss when it comes to all things astronomy, right? So you always want to, you know, hope for them clear skies. But uh, even if you get a break in the clouds, if it's a little bit cloudy, you can still, if you're in a dark enough area, see a few meteors come through the gaps every now and again. Absolutely.
0: What is it about the Perseids, the Perseid meteor shower that, that why is it so much kind of better? Like you said, it's kind of deemed as the one. What makes it so spectacular?
3: Well, what makes it so spectacular is a combination of things. First of all, it's the sheer volume uh, of meteors that you see. Uh, 60 to 100 meteors per hour in a dark spot is, is you know, ludicrously high when it comes to most meteor showers. Most meteor showers top out at about 50 Um so just in sheer volume, that's already up there. Uh, and because it happens uh, usually between the middle of July and the middle of August, um, this is usually at least in the northern hemisphere, our summer. So more likely than not, our weather is going to be better. Uh, so that helps it kind of, you know, overpower uh, the other ones as well, just by virtue of when it is.
0: Hmm. And I understand, too, that it, and I think from what I've read about this, that this is in helping or will likely help to get a better view of the Perseids is that the moon is not full. The moon, the moon isn't going to be giving off a ton of light either.
3: That's exactly it. So the moon, people like to use the moon as, you know, this the, the shining star, if you will, of the night sky. Um, but when it comes to observing most things, the night sky, the moon is actually your enemy. Um, Because it's so bright, it washes out a lot of dark objects. So last year, for instance, for last year's Perseid meteor shower, we had great weather. Uh, We had perfect conditions, except the moon was full. Uh, And that really limited what you could see. But this year, the moon is just about, uh, actually, it's almost a new moon. So it's almost going to be completely dark. So the night sky as a whole will be a lot darker than it has been in the past. And so in terms of our luck, uh, at least with the moon and the night sky, uh, this year should be a much better show uh, than we've seen in the last at least few years.
0: Hmm, interesting. Uh, why do we see them? Why is it always at this time of year?
3: So and this is one of my favorite questions that people ask about, uh, not just the Perseus, but meteor showers in general. Uh, and it's actually because uh, of the fact that we get comets in our solar system. So comets, these big hunks of ice and rocks that come in from the outer solar system. Uh, and of course, there's like the famous ones like Hale-Bopp and Halley's Comet, Um But what a meteor shower is, and this is true for all meteor showers, is just the Earth plowing into a debris field left behind by a comet. So whenever we plow through one of these fields, to us it seems like there are stars coming down through the atmosphere. But what's really happening is we're kind of, the Earth is mowing its way through a field of debris. And so the Perseids actually come from the debris of Comet Swift-Tuttle. Swift-Tuttle is a fairly nondescript comet. Uh, There's it's real claim to fame is uh, creating the Perseids, Uh, but it orbits the sun at once every 133 years. uh, And it goes out all the way um, kind of past Jupiter. Um, And that's really where we get the Perseids from is we cross its debris trail. Every time it enters the inner solar system, it recharges this meteor shower. Um, And so the last, I believe, close, to the inner solar system was in 1992. So we got, you know, recharged, if you will, with meteors in 1992, but we won't get another recharge then for about another 100 years. Hmm. So as time goes on, we do expect um, the Perseids to sort of diminish in power, uh, but it shouldn't be that uh, noticeable unless, of course, uh, you know, our fundamental understanding of how these things work changes a little bit, but that's where it comes from. It's from the, the debris of comets.
0: Interesting. And you mentioned this as well, that the the reason this is such a great show is there's so many of them. Because isn't it annoying when someone says, oh, did you just see that? And you look and you're a couple oh, of God. seconds behind and you didn't see anything. <laughs> uh, but so th- that, that won't doesn't really happen with these, though. If you look up and you're looking up at the right time, you're probably going to see something. Yeah. And
3: this is kind of a good way for me to, like, I always tell people when it comes to viewing meteor showers, uh, the best way to do it is to just pick a spot in the sky and commit. Um, you know, there are technically better places to look, and what you want to look into is a place called the radiant. And the radiant is where the meteors seem to be coming from. They're not actually coming from that location, of course, but in the night sky, that's what it looks like. Uh, and the radiant will actually be mostly in the northeast sky. Uh, if you have like a like a constellation or a star map uh, app on your phone or something like that. Uh, It'll be right for the constellation of Perseus. And that's why we call it the Perseus. Um, So if you kind of just lie on your back or sit in a chair and stare up at that part of the sky, give your eyes about 20 minutes to adjust to the nighttime and just look, Uh, they'll appear to come from that direction. But meteors will appear in most parts of the sky if you look there long enough.
0: And that uh, gets us. Uh, I want to talk about the event. Uh, this is a great chance for that. Uh, but uh, but uh, outside of the event, where so go somewhere where it's dark. Go somewhere where you can look to that that part of the sky. When would be the right time, or do we know when the right time, the perfect time to see this will be?
3: So the Perseids will actually peak uh, Saturday night. Uh, Saturday night around midnight, one a.m. So that's kind of when you really want to be out there if you're interested. Um, but of course, even tonight, there will be some meteor activity. Uh, the later in the night you go, the better it will be. Um, but Saturday night is the peak. And as to where you want to go, my advice to people is always the same just get as far away from streetlights as you possibly can. Um, you know, for those of us uh, who have vehicles, that's a little bit easier said than done, of course. Uh, but there are plenty of locations accessible within public transit uh, that will get you what you need to do. And even from within the city, Uh, As long as you're kind of staring up into a dark night sky uh, and you're not, you know, looking into any lights or anything like that, you'll be able to make out a few meteors, you know, every, you know, 10 to 15 minutes or so. Um, So ideally, you know, hop in your car and hike it out of town. Uh, If you do so, of course, be safe, let people know where you're going and prepare. Uh, But otherwise... Just get as far away from city lights as you can.
0: And does elevation help? In that, I, I feel like people always go if if they can Queen Elizabeth Park or go to places where you're a bit higher up and maybe above those lights.
3: Well, yes, um, Queen Elizabeth Park wouldn't be as much wouldn't be a huge difference than say the beach. Besides the change in light pollution, because it's a little bit darker uh, in Queen Elizabeth Park. Um, if you really want to make a difference, you're going to have to really hike it up to the mountain passes. Uh, And there are there are a few people who do this. I do know uh, a handful of people who actually for the Perseids will drive all the way out to Manning Park. Uh, Manning Park is a fantastic area, uh, two hours east of Hope-ish or an hour and a half east of Hope. Uh, Fantastic dark skies there. Um, So I do know people who will go out that way. I know people who will drive all the way up past Whistler uh, between Wester and Pemberton. Um, But elevation only really matters is if you can get, you know, more than a couple thousand feet above sea level, then you can really start to get that difference.
0: And Andrew, you have an event uh, that's taking place in Alder Grove. What is that one? What is that one looking like?
3: Yeah, so that event in Alder Grove uh, is actually going to be happening tomorrow night. uh, And it's an event that we hold, uh, RAS Vancouver holds. uh, We try to hold it every year. Uh, It's Alder Grove Regional Park. It's from 8 to 11 p.m. tomorrow night. Uh, And the big draw for that event is actually... um, you can actually camp overnight here. And so members of RASC Vancouver uh, will have our telescopes. We'll be able to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the night sky. Um, we do this uh, in collaboration with Metro Vancouver Parks. Uh, so big shout out to them as well for, uh, for helping us out with that. But again, that's at 685 Lefebvre Road in Abbotsford, or Aldergrove, sorry. Uh, it runs from 8 to 11. The event is completely free. You can just swing by and show up. Uh, but if you want to stay overnight and camp, there's a bit of a small fee.
0: Sounds great for people to take in what is promising to be a pretty good meteor shower. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this and have fun watching those Perseids this weekend.
3: Yeah, all the best. Thanks so much, Doug.